this week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. We stay so focused on completing the task and then checking, marking that off of our checklist and moving on to the next, ta- next task that we don't stop and take a look back at what we have accomplished. Yeah, I, I think that's so important for, for uh, maintaining self-motivation as well. You're so right. You know, we're so fast to criticize, and I guess in academic medicine, and we, we get this thick skin because we get so many papers rejected and so many grants rejected and, and constant dings in our email that we're, we failed to complete some regulatory compliance yeah. training and all these threatening, you know, things coming at us. So we're so used to the criticism, criticism, criticism. And I, I just love how you stop to say, no, you wait a minute. We have to appreciate and value the good things that we're doing. And we don't do that enough. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Erica Brown. She's the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Development at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Erica. How are you today? I'm doing great, Kim. Thank you. How in the world did you end up the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Development? And I I know you do breast cancer research, so can you walk us through that journey? Okay, absolutely. Hey, well, as you said, uh, my background is in breast cancer research, so I, I got my first faculty position at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston in 2004. And I primarily served as a, a, as a researcher and um, maybe about 20 to 30 percent teaching. And I stayed in that mode for a few years. And then in about maybe 2007, I became a course director for one of the courses in my, my um, academic department, which was the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. So I remained a course director for about uh, just about a year or so, and the uh, provost at that time took note of the administrative responsibilities I had taken on and was impressed and wanted to further develop those administrative talents, especially with me wanting to have a, a, a longer career or a career of longevity in academia. So I then had a, a director's position in the office of the provost, and I also continued to um, perform research and teach. And my area of research, as we stated, was in, is in, to some extent still is in breast cancer, where I studied the BRCA1 and BRCA2 proteins, as well as their roles in repair of damaged DNA. So, so about, let me see, 2000, from about 2008 until 2012, I um, had those three academic areas that I was focused on in my career. And in around 2012, I wanted to move closer to home. I'm a native of Atlanta, and this is where my family resides. And and Charleston was about a five-hour drive between Atlanta, uh, or or there's a five-hour drive between Charleston and Atlanta. And I wanted to live in a much closer proximity to my family and close friends. So I started looking at positions that were a little closer to home or within the city of Atlanta. So I asked around, and I and timing is everything. If, if there's any type of professional development um, advice I could give, is you know there are times when all of the stars align and things just come together. And at the time that I was looking for another position, and also looking to move up in academia, 
the position of the inaugural or the new associate dean for faculty affairs and development opened up at Morehouse School of Medicine. I was invited to apply an interview, and fortunately, I got the position. So the goal was to not only leave the office, but to also create it as well. So that that was a very interesting task, and um, I learned a lot from it by being able to build um, an, an office of this magnitude on campus. Wow. So you walked into nothing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how, so walk us through your brand new on the campus. Um, you had not been an associate dean and you're in Charleston. So but obviously you'd observed what was happening, the provost office. and You had all that administrative, you know, expertise and course directorship. What was like the first thing you did when you got in this new role as um, faculty of and development? What, what did you start with? Well, there were two major things. The, the first thing was to work closely with the with my dean at that time to determine what the needs were on campus regarding faculty affairs and, and professional development and to pro- perform a needs assessment. So I needed to determine what did we already have on campus because each department and each unit had their own thing going, but they were but they were at varying levels of of development of, of those individual um, professional development opportunities. So I needed to see what did we already have on campus? What did we need? And with respect to what was on campus, what was, I'd say, in a, in a final stage, what, what was, you know, off the presses and ready to go and what actually just needed to be enhanced? So that was the first thing. And the second thing was uh, I needed mentors because this was a new for me. And I was fortunate enough to be assigned two mentors. One was um, an individual who was a vice provost for academic affairs and had spent many years doing what, what I was about to embark on doing. And the other was someone who was connected with the AAMC in the group of faculty affairs. And they were very, um, oh gosh, they were invaluable in helping me to not reinvent the wheel. Because I we scheduled monthly meetings with each other, and I relayed to them what the vision was for the institution, what I saw the needs were, as well as what our strengths were, what we could actually build on, what we already had in place, and we could enhance. And from that, we had this this wonderful academic trifecta, and and we were able to get the the office just up and going. I'd say within about six months as far as getting those those foundational things in place. Now, it took about five years for me to look back and just see how far we had come. But uh, but with that that foundation, that 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 really um, really helped the office soar. And I say two things, but there was also a third thing, and that was establishing those collaborations with other units that work closely or would be working closely with our office. So within my first six months, I also made an effort to get to know the staff in human resources, got to know our general counsel, also got to know those other offices that would be instrumental in in, um, professional development, such as our um, Office of um, Continuing Medical Education, our Office of Research Development, and building those collaborations also helped to really boost the effectiveness of the office. And so as, as we sit here today, 
Now, you joined in 2008 at this position, right? Actually, uh, 2013. So I got, I um, started my administrative position in 2008 at my previous institution. Okay. I interviewed um, here in, in December of 2012 and started working in February of 2013. What does your office look like now then, six years later? Yeah, and one thing I want to reiterate is I think things were happening all along, you know, within the, that five-year period. But once I got to that five-year benchmark and I started doing an assessment of where we started and where where we were at that time, because you know, I actually stopped and looked instead of just, you know, remaining in motion. Once I stopped and looked back, I said, okay, we have really gotten a lot accomplished. But, um, but the way the office is set up now is I have roughly three staff members. One is our faculty affairs coordinator. And this individual is responsible for processing the academic components or packets for new faculty members regarding their appointments. And and we also process what's required for promotion of faculty. And this individual is responsible for really managing overall academic components of faculty employment and also is engaged with um, our faculty bylaws committee and other related faculty policies. And this individual um, retains a strong link with all of our academic departments uh, with respect to uh, remaining in communication with our office. So that's one individual. The other is a manager of faculty records. And this person maintains all of the databases and demographic information that pertains to faculty and also manages the processes for annual evaluations and is responsible for the generation of faculty data and faculty reports. And as you know, this is, in, this is important um, when we have to provide information to, say, our accrediting bodies or if we are, are going to embark on any type of strategic planning on campus. Those reports are important. And this, this individual also works closely with HR. And the next person is our faculty development, development liaison. And I refer to them as a liaison because this is someone who is actually in another office but works closely with ours. And this individual works in the office that houses our continuing medical education programming and, um, and, and and basically, the 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 um, all that pertains to continuing medical education. But their office is called the Office of Extended Professional Education, which we call OEPE for short. So this individual serves as, like I said before, a liaison between our office and maintaining and engaging in professional development across campus. So this person keeps our office connected with HR, and we have an Office of Digital Learning, which is instrumental in teaching our faculty how to instruct in more online modalities. And this person also keeps us connected with the Office of Research and Development, and that has been really instrumental in incorporating um, activities such as research boot camps into our professional development seminar series and workshops. Nice. Now, before we go on, and thanks for that description, everybody kind of likes to to hear how we all run our offices because we are all so different. But so that's that's exactly. background for those of us who are embarking on new careers or just getting into the field. So that's great. Now, I wanted to just go back a little bit because I really want, I liked what you talked about 
when you were mentioning the pause thing at, at the five year mark where you you said something I think that's so important that we shouldn't gloss over is we're all like everybody in academic medicine. We're all running 100 miles an hour and going so fast and 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 the job is hard and, and our faculty members really work hard and it's hard for them. And we're always just running from thing to thing to thing. And I like how you put that, that at the five year mark, you didn't just keep doing, you stopped and reflected and went up in the, you know, the bleachers and, and looked down at what you built and really took a moment to savor that and appreciate that and recognize that. And what I loved about that was it's a good reminder that we should be, and a lot of us do with our faculty members and we have leadership programs because, you know, that frenetic pace when they come into a session and they got a hundred things in their mind and their phones are going off and their emails buzzing and you could see that they're just scattered and they so want to take advantage of these offer, the, you know, the offer of the seminar workshop, whatever we're doing but you can see that they're just split and and we always try to take a moment. Okay, let's all just take a deep breath. You're here. Let's commit to being in this moment right now. Focus. You're doing great. You are really adding value. You the work you do is incredible. Appreciate that. Celebrate that. And I start all all my leadership courses off with, "Okay, you made it. This is your time. You invested in you." Let's start with celebrations. Who got a paper submitted? Who got a paper accepted? Who got a grant submitted? Who has a baby? Who's going to have a baby? And we just try to take a moment <laughs> to celebrate because we're always running. And so I loved how you said that I didn't just keep going, going, yep, five-year anniversary, keep on keeping on, but you actually stopped and and you savored that and, and really appreciated how far you'd come. Thank you. And I love when you said how you you basically start off your leadership trainings with celebrations. And you're you're absolutely right. We stay so focused on on just completing the task and then checking marking that off of our checklist and moving on to the next ta- next task that we don't stop and take a look back at what we have accomplished. Yeah, I, I think that's so important for for uh, maintaining self motivation as well. They're so you know we're so fast to criticize, and I guess in academic medicine, and we we get this thick skin because we get so many papers rejected and so many grants rejected, and and constant dings in our email that we we failed to complete some regulatory compliance yeah. training, and all these threatening you know things coming at us. So we're so used to the criticism, 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 and I I just love how you stop to say no. Wait a minute, we have to appreciate and value the good things that we're doing. And we don't do that enough. I mean, I mean, my division is geriatric medicine, gerontology, and our director, Dr. Chris Durso is so good at that. He sends pictures. So-and-so had a baby. Take a look at this. Congratulations. So-and-so got a grant, um, you know, awarded or got a good score. So-and-so submitted their paper. And just those little emails, you know, that takes two seconds to read it, but it's a little hit of like an endorphin of like, yeah, we're doing good stuff here. People stop, you know, Stop being so hard on yourselves. You're you're doing great. Absolutely. And this is a bit of a sidebar, but I um, I was a facilitator for one of our sessions at the um, GFA meeting last summer, and one of the speakers was Dr. Eric Macias. And one of the things he spoke about was the importance of 
of just that type of positive reinforcement and how it aligns with wellness. So, so even if we aren't getting that externally, we have to be able to provide that for ourselves as well. And if something good happens, I may take maybe 20 minutes to celebrate it, maybe 30 minutes, maybe, maybe a day, but I know, you know, at some point I have, you got to get, get back to working on those other tasks on your task list. But I, I just like every now and then to take a moment and just savor savor whatever that accomplishment or that victory is. And I, it, it may be something I may go and get, I don't know, a candy bar. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to apologize, apologizing to people who are listening right now, but I'm going to beat this horse one more time. Um, and, and sometimes it's so hard to celebrate because it, it's so natural and organic a thing for you to do A, B or C. So I also tell our faculty members, you think this is no big deal, or maybe some of you have come to the point where you're like, well, I've done this surgical procedure umpteen times. It's not a big deal. Why should I celebrate another paper getting submitted? I've submitted hundreds of papers. Why should I celebrate this grant? It's probably not going to get funded. But what I don't know what that's called psychologically, but this idea that you know, we, we minimize our importance because it has become rote or easy for us to do yeah. that thing. And so we think, well, it's not a big deal. But when someone told me when I got in faculty development 12 years or so ago, um, and I was like, well, this job, you know, I was the director of the research mentoring program at Rush University. And I'm like, what's well, just so easy? I mean, anybody could do this. And they're like, no, not everybody could do this. I'm like, come on, how, how could this anybody. This is so easy. They're like, no, that's what you're failing to understand, Kim, is that it's easy for you because it's your gift. It's easy for us. And it's like, eh, not a big deal, but it is a big deal that because it's become so rote, it's because we've become um, more skilled at it. So because we're skilled at it, we think it's not a big deal, but to anybody else looking in, no, this is because this is our area of expertise and we're good at it. And, you know, and like you said, Take a minute and and appreciate that instead of always beating yourself up or tending this you know inappropriate social comparison. I'm not as good as somebody else because they're doing that. No, you're really good at what you're doing right there, and not everybody can do what you do. Exactly, exactly. And my feeling is the the work is always going to be there. The work is going to continue to pile up. <laughs> so so those little moments, and like I said, they can be very small. Those little moments are very therapeutic. Well, so this is brings us to, I would love to hear, um, I'm sure everybody else would, what do you do in your role or in your office or anything at your school or anything that um, you think is unique or different or something that makes you excited or innovative, something that you want to kind of uh, get people to kind of listen up here and maybe um, be encouraged or find some wisdom in what's happening in Atlanta? What do you think? Things that we have developed in our office that I, I think are pretty pretty cool. One is an executive onboarding program that um, let me see. We have been doing this now for five years, and I think we've had about uh, maybe about eighty four people go through the program. And, and it was actually started back in twenty fourteen when our our dean became the president and dean. She. Um, She holds both positions now. So she was essentially promoted from just being the dean to becoming the president and dean. And with that, she had to assemble a very large team rather uh, rather quickly. And our goal was to ensure that those members, even if they were promoted internally, 
had a a comprehensive familiarization with the institution and that they had mentorship. So myself and our VP of HR and the president and dean, we got together and designed what we call this uh, new leadership executive onboarding program. And it familiarizes uh, participants to every unit of the institution. So that's every research, academic, clinical, um, administrative unit. And uh, the participants are also provided three mentors. Now, with respect to the... um, the the I guess the the presentation of the units that occurs over a course of six weeks and it's one day out of the week we have it every Tuesday from four to six four to six p.m. and then as far as the mentors are concerned this is um, a strategy that we actually adopted from another institution that we've given credit and there are three mentors one is a peer mentor who's like a buddy and holds the same type of position as that new leader. The second is an orientation navigator who is someone who is a, a skilled administrator who can help that new leader with admin, daily, day-to-day administrative responsibilities. And the third is a, um, is a transition mentor, and that's the person who helps the individual with, say, strategic planning. They may not have the same type of um, function as that person. But they have expertise in, in, say, building and developing new offices and programs, and they're generally someone who's external and external to the institution. Mm-hmm. So the, the exactly. So those individuals are paired with three men, three mentors in those categories, and we perform a pretest, of course, before we start the program, and a post test. But we also perform a retrospective. Survey. So let me rephrase that. So a pre, pre-survey, post-survey, and a retrospective survey. And the retrospective survey is only given to those individuals who were promoted internally, and it examines them to see if they knew as much about the institution as they thought they did. And what we find is at the end of the, the six weeks that those individuals who were in, um, promoted internally did not know as much as they felt that they did, regardless of how many years they had been employed here. Well, so we have found, <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> so we found the program to be extremely successful. And in fact, we copyrighted the program. And there are other um, institutions across the nation who would really like us to help them develop something similar. And I, I've um, had the privilege of presenting this at the GFA meeting last summer as well. So that's one of the things. That- Could I stop you there? I want to hear more about this transition mentor who's external to the institution. What is interesting is we set funds aside to pay the transition mentors, but they were so happy to be engaged in this and, and felt so honored to be invited that none of them accepted the funds that we were going to, we were going to provide. And essentially what, what we've done is with our top leadership, they have a very extensive um, cadre of, of collaborators outside of the institution. And we just basically petitioned them. We petitioned our president as far as who their networks are. And we find from the network someone who can best align with that new leader. And for example, uh, with with our Office of Institutional Advancement, we hired quite a few people in that area. And so the person who is the VP of Institutional Advancement, he has collaborations with a lot of PR firms or 
um, or a lot of um, nonprofit agencies outside of Atlanta. So we end up pairing someone internally with someone on the external side. And it's also instrumental in helping us to build more collaborations with outside entities and the institution. Do you have any formal protocol for assessing those transition mentors? Yeah, and generally the uh, external mentors, excuse me, the transition mentors that we select are individuals who are already familiar with the institution. So, so they, so they, they work with us in some capacity. Now, granted, once the, the mentoring relationship continues to grow and develop, they learn even more about the institution. Wow. And I wonder if those, the new leaders have, I bet they probably have some level of ongoing connection with those external folks. They do. They do. And, and that, that's one of the things that we're very pleased to see that not only do these relationships continue on uh, as far as mentorship is concerned, but of course there are friendships that develop there are few, um, we've had even more developed collaborations occur, which really help the institution get its name. Uh, well, it's already pretty well known in the community, but it helps to, I guess, put more appendages out there in areas that may not be as familiar with the institution. How do you find those external mentors view themselves? Are are they coaching or mentoring? Is there any distinction? Is that you know? Have you thought any about that? In a sense, they are coaches. They are because they, they are really uh, responsible for helping with the, the strategic planning of that, 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 that um, new leader would incur in their new role. So it's not necessarily someone who has, like I said, the same function because that's what the peer mentor, the role of the peer mentor is. But with the transition mentor, it really is more of a coaching type. Um, relationship. And, and like I said, this, these are concepts that we actually adapted from another institution, which we do give them credit for. Wonderful. Now, before we go into your second thing, I know you want to talk about, let's give a shout out to our sister, who is the dean and president. Let's let's get her name out there. That's a wonderful accomplishment. So who is your president? Okay. Her name is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. All right. So what was the other thing you wanted to share with us? Now, the other thing is probably something that is common on other campuses, but we've been able to adapt it for our institution. So what we were finding from our junior faculty was they were very vocal about what they felt they were missing in the, uh, I guess, years one to three of their um, their introduction to being independent, basically. And we took that information, and the, actually the information was achieved through a, a series of lunches and dinners with junior faculty where they were able to have open discussions with our president. And so from those meeting minutes, we took that information and tried to develop some form of programming that was specific for them. So our first um, endeavor in this was back in the fall. We had a junior faculty workshop where we just basically focused on those things, the, the, the things that they felt were very pertinent to them that wasn't obvious and that they didn't get in their training. So we talked about the importance of allocation of effort, uh, the role of mentors, how to find mentors, how to select committees, the importance of IBPs or, or um, independent development plans. And, and in addition to that, we know what the needs are of junior faculty members because we want them to start off, uh, you know, on the right foot. But then also with our department chairs, 
we started um, developing a series of what we call chair sessions, where we focus on things such as strategic planning for the department, um, understanding budget fund flows, maximizing annual evaluations, so things along those lines. Like I said, there, there may be similar activities that are being implemented at other institutions, but we were able to take um, those items, customize them for Morehouse School of Medicine based on the feedback that we got from junior faculty, faculty as well as department chairs. And what, I, and what I'd like to emphasize about that is being in, in this position, as you know, Kim, you, you may talk a lot, but you also have to take opportunities to listen. And listening is what really helps to build a robust office and enhance the offerings that you provide and enhance the, the, the environment for development of your, of your faculty. Right. I share that, that mantra or that belief. So I've been at Hopkins for, oh, it'll be six years now. And every month we have our faculty senate meetings. And if, like everybody else, faculty senate, they have one to three or four representatives based on the size of the department from every department. So our 32, 33 departments. And, and um, there, it's a very important body in our school of medicine came up with a universal child care policy, which Hopkins had never have up, had up until two years ago, and tackling a new clinical excellence pathway for promotion. So there's a lot of important work that happens there. And and then we have a, a an advisory board of the medical faculty. That, that's the dean meets every month with all the department chairs, or we call them department directors. So there's this kind of like a hierarchy of these monthly meetings, an advisory board with the dean and this faculty senate. Well, shortly after it came, I noticed that um, for leadership, and that's people above me, they're not really coming to these monthly faculty senate meetings. They're going to the advisory board where the dean is and all those directors. And it's understandable. I mean, they're all overcommitted with meetings. And and it's, it's clear to me, I'm like, okay, well, my job as the associate dean for faculty development is we work hand in glove with our faculty senate. So surely I have to go to that meeting every month. And I was at one of those meetings and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's been six years. If I have to hear one more talk about, you know, regulatory compliance or, you know, the Baltimore City safety report. And and I kind of sat there and I was kind of feeling, you know, big for my britches, I guess. And then I I reminded myself, wait a minute, Kim, this is where you hear the concerns of the faculty. These faculty Senate representatives are representing their faculty members, and talk about a, any better forum to hear what they're talking about, what they're thinking about, what they're worried about, um, what mm-hmm. annoys them. That was, that realization kind of hit myself up the side of the head, like, don't get all, you know, full of yourself because you sit here and think, all I do is just sit here every month for two hours and, you know, I'm just, you know, not learning anything new of, of you know, like any kind of didactic learning. But then when I changed I agree. orientation that, no, your job is to be here with two ears and listen. And exactly what you just said. I mean, that was a real reminder that stop running, running, running and worrying about all the work you're not doing or the emails you're not answering. Just stop, be still, be quiet and listen to what's going on around there because that's when you'll get insights many times into some exactly. unmet needs. Exactly, exactly. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And and a lot of times, 
you, and, and you hit the nail on the head where you said you're, you're kind of tired of hearing about whatever that, that issue is. And when you stop and listen, sometimes it's a very simple fix. I love Dan Shapiro. He was uh, one of the first podcasts that we dropped. He, he was so funny. He said, you know, we're talking about wellness and joy in medicine. He said, how can our faculty have joy or have any kind of happiness in life when even getting into work is hard because the, the stupid gate on the parking lot or the parking ramp will go exactly. up. Exactly. So start off their Perfect day. Perfect example. Yeah. Perfect example. Yeah. So you're exactly right when you think, well, wait a minute, how come someone just doesn't fix that? And then it's just because that's one of the so many things are just like, oh, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. And a little tweak can just change people's lives of clicking something a little bit easier or or yeah, making sure there's water in the water machine. You know, if, if mm-hmm. not now, when, if not me, who? Just do it already. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us something else that's going on in Atlanta or something you're noticing with your faculty or what's coming around the bend. What do you, what do you think, um, you know, you're teeing up for something in- interesting soon? Well, can't say what, what uh, we have quite a few things on the docket. We stay very, very busy. But one thing that I've, I've learned throughout all of this is, you know, we, we have so much information that's published in our handbooks, that's published in our bylaws. You know, we send out emails left and right. But I've learned that how the information is presented is the key because we want to make sure that people acknowledge the information and that they retain it. So what I've, I've done since I've been here, when I've, when I've had to personally give workshops, is to really just present the information that's already in our handbooks and our bylaws and that's on our website, but to present it in a way where the information can be reinforced and retained and to present it in an engaging format. So, it, and it, it sounds very, you know, simple in theory just to take what's already published and, and to just make sure that people understand it. And in fact, one of my coworkers here says, if you want to make sure people don't know what's, um, I guess, how does she put it? It's so funny. If, if you want to make sure that people don't know what a rule or regulation is, you know, type it up and put it in a book. <laughs> put it in a manual. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that is so so, I've, so I've, I've had to learn to be a, a, a somewhat creative as far as disseminating information and ensuring that it's being retained. So I've, I've, like I said, I just basically develop presentations that emphasize what's in our manuals, but I try to use things such as case studies, uh, flowcharts, and diagrams. Mm. I have other people come in and role play. And I do this, um, like I said, in order for it to be engaging and for people to remember. And the, and the good thing, too, is if it's in a presentation, people can take that it's been consolidated and they can basically use it as a cheat sheet when it comes to remembering policies and procedures and guidelines. And what I noticed is that this has helped to really increase the level of knowledge regarding our faculty affairs policies across campus. And it's also helped to cut down on the number of times someone emails you or calls you to ask you about a, a policy because it's been presented in a way where they remember it. And it now becomes second nature. So I, so I would say that's what I've learned, which has really been helpful for me. And if you remember uh, Valerie Clark, who um, recently left the AAMC, one of the things that she said was when it comes to 
disseminating information and to ensure that people retain it, you have to present it three times, three different ways. Say that again. To ensure that um, people are retaining the information that you're disseminating, you need to present it three times, three different ways. I love that you're so creative with the role plays. I never thought of doing that for something like something out of our gold book or art. I never thought of doing role playing. Instead, you know, exactly. you beat them up with PowerPoint and just copy and paste from the gold book into a slide, new slide, new slide, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. And then we say, well, they, they, they know we have a link to the gold book. We have a link to this. We've given them the PowerPoint slides, but I love that idea of something that would stick in their heads as a memorable experience or the, like you said, vignettes or case studies or talking with each other. And I'm reflecting now back. Oh, that reminds me in uh, the Center on Aging and Health, because I do gerontology work. We have this family social resources working group. And one of our faculty member researchers in nursing, Dr. Laura Samuel, she does so- socioeconomic disparities research. And she was presenting her research, preparing for our gerontologic meeting. And she started off her talk with, she held up a dollar bill and just paused mm-hmm. and like held this dollar bill, you know, can you, know, what does this mean to you? What does this represent to you? And everybody was like, what? what in the world is she talking about? And she kept holding that dollar bill up. And then mm-hmm. she went into, you know, the meaning of money and the value of money. And it, it really, it stuck with me just for what you said, that unique, creative catch. And I'm sure people out there who may be listening to this, who like did do communication, they're like, duh, you know, that's how you present it. You grab the audience by doing something like, here's a problem, or you catch their, their eye by doing something different versus just ripping into, we're here to talk about promotion today, blah, blah, blah. But her standing there in quiet and being quiet and holding that dollar bill up, then you're almost like, where's she going with this? What's, what's this about? And now exactly. More exactly. My other friend is in a communication or marketing person, and she always reminds me, Ken, uh, the, the key to good marketing is a, pers- a persistent message consistently presented. No, a consistent message persistently presented. A consistent message persistently presented. So you oh, I like that. Out, yeah, what is your consistent message persistently <laughs> presented? So you say the same thing, and you... You, you continue to you know, beat them about the head with that information. But yeah, to Valerie Clark's three different ways, because we all learn a different style. Some people will learn it by, exactly. it by watching it, by reading it, by hearing it. So I, what, like, what, what would a typical role play look like when you have people come in? What are they doing or what are they acting out? Well, an example of one that we, we performed was the relationship between the department chair and a center and institute director. So I don't, I don't know how this is at other institutions, but there, there tend to be faculty that are shared between a department chair and a center institute director. However, the department chair, at least here, is responsible for the annual evaluations and ensuring how that individual's um, salary is going to be allocated. So we wanted to make sure that there would be communication, uh, consistent communication, and that the lines are open between the department chair and the center or institute director pertaining to that one that one faculty member, because we didn't want one entity doing something without the other knowing. So there was a role play between a center and institute director and a department chair where they were discussing the the future of a faculty member, and by having that 
that role playing um, scenario, we wanted to reinforce to our other center institute directors and department chairs that when it comes to your shared faculty, this is how we want you to engage in discussing them. Because what, what we don't want to happen is if there is funding that's coming through a center or institute and the funding disappears and the department chair isn't aware of that and the department chair has to find funds at the last minute to try to support that faculty member. So that's why that communication is really important. That's really great. I just, I, I love that. So who do you have that does the, those, the role playing? Are they actors or are they really directors and institute directors? We, uh, we don't have any actors. Well, some individuals may think that they're actors, but <laughs> we've done a combination. We'll have uh, faculty members. We may have staff. And, and we may have actual department chairs and center and institute directors uh, playing those roles. I bet you they really remember that. It, it's making me think of, you know, when you do mock study sections. So when I was at, at Rush, I hosted um, mock NIH study sections where a couple brave souls, faculty members, submitted their grant applications. And we had a panel sitting up on a dais of, you know, five or six, whatever, senior faculty folks who'd been serving on for many, many years. And literally, there was no, they kind of just carried themselves as if they were at a real NIH study section. And everybody in the audience just watched. It was just completely observing how, you know, the review would go and what they'd say and what they'd talk about and how they score and don't score and things that come up and how somebody will, you know, kind of change the score just by saying something and how they're rebutted. And it was just fascinating. And then we, at the end of the, you know, 45 minutes or whatever it was, then it was opened up to Q&A. And I'll tell you, those audience mem- members, many of them were like, I had no idea. You got to like, get a peek into the inside world. And so I bet the people who watch that role play are the same thing. Like, are you kidding me? That's what they talk about? That's the issues or that's what they're saying? And, and you're right. And it reinforces how at least those two en- entities that we targeted, how they should communicate with each other and, and, that, and remain in consistent communication. Is there something else you'd like to impart with us? Well, one thing I, I would definitely say is in academia, we are we are generally more focused on employing our analytical side. But I think it's also helpful to, you know, use both sides of your brain, so to speak. Don't be, be afraid to infuse the create your creative side with the analytical side, and and with that, um, don't don't set boundaries. So, and, and, and just be amazed at how far your office or your program, whatever the idea is, how far it can go. So, of course, keep the analytical side, step out and embark on the creative side, and be boundless. Yeah, don't be afraid. I love that, the courageous of just, we, our, our Associate Dean for Educational Development, Dr. Rachel Levine, for years now, I guess over a decade, has been bringing um, improv into her foundations of teaching and learning and educational series because it helps people master the, their confidence and overcome fears around public speaking. And so improv, you know, saying yes and helping people communicate with pa- patients. And so we recently started uh, at like an eight-week series of improv. We started off with a one-hour, it, it was a one-and-a-half-hour seminar on the basics improvisation. And then the, the turnout was great and people loved it. And that's one of those things where 
you say, oh, we're doing improv, and some people's eyebrows go, seriously? But then once you understand, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute, no, there are people who really, they can benefit from this, not only in confidence, but communication and not shutting someone else down by adhering to the basic tenets of improv, which is yes, and rather than no, but, or, you know, that, that kind of closing off um, communication. Mm-hmm. So it was not only fun, but you're, I, you know, just like you said, you get into that whole artistic don't worry and don't doubt yourself. Just have fun. And oftentimes that's our brains, you know, light up because we're so used to being serious scientist all day, serious physician, being fun and laughing. Our brains will fire up in all new, you know, interesting ways. And Absolutely. What you might come up with creatively. Absolutely. Well, I am totally inspired. You've given me all kinds of ideas <laughs> and I'm sure everybody else loves this. We've been listening and talking with Dr. Erica Brown, who is the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Development in the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.